0: Hey, everyone, welcome to the 262nd episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a jam-packed show for you today. We are going to be talking about contact tracing via Apple and Google. We're going to be talking about APIs and why they matter for the Internet of Things. Plus, Microsoft has new 5G edge computing scenarios. We're going to explain how the cloud and carriers are coming together for low-latency 5G. Then we'll talk a little bit about what tech companies can do to help influence people during the pandemic. We're going to talk about the best Wi-Fi out there. Fitbit has a new device, and Wise has enabled you to turn your WISECam into a webcam. Plus, we're going to continue our world we want to live in post-pandemic idea with talking about the internet as a utility. And then Kevin is going to talk about Home Assistant. Yay! Our guest this week is Steve Steinhubel, who is... Director of Digital Medicine at Scripps Research Translational Institute. It's a fancy title, but basically what they're doing is looking at digital medicine and how it can help people. We're going to pitch their idea for the DETECT study, which is for Fitbit and Apple HealthKit users. You can basically share your data with doctors and see if they can use that data to predict people with COVID-19. We're also going to hear from a new sponsor this week, Calix, talking about how they can help ISPs deliver better service, and another one of our sponsors, Ayla Networks. So let's get to it with a message from Ayla. Ayla Networks is a leading provider of edge connectivity, device management, and application enablement for the Internet of Things. Ayla enables the world's largest companies to connect any device on any cloud to any application. Has the fastest time to market. It's flexible and future-proof. It increases operational efficiencies, and it enhances the customer experience. For more information, please visit www.aylanetworks.com. That's a y l a networks.com. Okay, Kevin. Oh, weird. Yeah. The pan... <laughs> I wrote about this in last week's newsletter, and basically how we shouldn't use the pandemic as an excuse to give up our privacy. And lo and behold, what is happening?
1: <laughs> everybody, not everybody. Some people think you're wrong.
0: And that's fair. I mean, that's, that's what life is. And I think if we decide to give up our privacy in the name of a pandemic, and we do things like contact tracing and use QR codes or our location on our phones to say, hey, this is who I was with and where I was, that we should take that data, lock it in a box after we're done and throw that box away. If you don't want to throw that box away, I think you should lock it in a box and wait probably two years or so, and then make it available for researchers. And if researchers want it, they should actually have to ask like a a review board. So an IRB that will decide, hey, is this ethical? Is this okay? Because this data is so powerful. The bottom line is the government beyond these few months should not have access to the data. And they should only have access to the data for the purposes of contact tracing, not for grabbing later and being like, hey, you were near that jewelry store when it was robbed. All right, right, that's my two cents. But what's actually happening, Kevin?
1: Well, I mean, in other countries, especially in the Asian area, this is Everyday norm to have the government or some entity tracking your every move. And that's an extreme thing to deal with, of course. And I, I don't think anybody wants that here in the US. Um, is there a middle ground? Maybe I, I totally agree with you on the government bit. And there's a an interesting thought piece on TechCrunch this week about, you know, Apple and Google could be the ones to you know, put together this track and trace kind of system, similar to what you might see in China or Singapore or Thailand. I don't really disagree with it in theory. It it all comes down to the implementation and therefore who has the data. And a good point is made here. And I'm just going to quote it. Apple and Google, especially compared to cellular providers, have a strong institutional history and focus on protecting privacy and limiting the remit of their surveillance. I mean, they've had some questionable security challenges, yes, but they're better than the government. So I I get that. I do. I mean, I, I think if I wanted to go down this road of where the thought piece is going, if companies such as Apple and Google could actually work together and protect the data from being used by the government in some way that we don't want it used.
0: And then they got rid of it? This is I'd be this be fine with getting
1: rid of it. Sure, sure.
0: Or they I mean, they donated it to science. I mean, this is valuable yeah. data. I mean, epidemiological it, spread of disease is something that sure. people are going to want to study.
1: So Apple doesn't sell data to advertisers like Google does, right? And Google doesn't do it directly either. Google is a broker. A lot of people don't understand that everybody says Google sells your data. You know, everything that Google knows about you, the advertisers know, that's not true. It's really the two are matched up, an advertiser with uh, maybe a a web server, a person serving on the web with these particular attributes and history. They don't know who I am, for example, but they know that I look at robots, so I get robot ads, whatever. If it was not used for advertising, if, if they came out and said it and yes, got rid of the data later or donated, as you said, I'd actually be happy with that because that approach, having that track and trace at a per person, per device level can really help in a pandemic situation. That's why these countries have stopped their spread so much faster than us.
0: Well, among other reasons, but yes, yes I agree. Yes, among other reasons. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I was trying to stay out of that side of the conversation.
0: <laughs> we don't have to go there. We just have to bring it up. I know what's going to happen, and I, maybe I'm not optimistic. I hate the fact that we're going to gather all this data, we're going to use it for this today and how long until tomorrow. But I, I do suggest you read the TechCrunch article the idea of private companies doing this somewhat rubs me the wrong way, but I can't argue with the basic premise. I would like the data not to remain in their hands. They do have this data anyway.
1: Right. And if it was going to be any companies to do this, could you think of any better ones? I'm not saying these are ideal. I'd say Apple. Yeah, I'd be happy with that. They're very data privacy centric. Google's, again, had some challenges and there are some people who just simply don't trust Google, but would you want a Facebook doing this? No, no. Nope. Right. So there are far worse companies here. I, I don't, I can't think of a better two. Maybe would you, would you include Amazon in there if they only used it for the,
0: if they only used it for this? Cause Amazon actually is like a cockroach hotel for data, right? Uh, they are, your data, data goes in, in, but it doesn't but- <laughs> check out. In, in that sense. Yes. I, I do worry that Amazon would Look at that, and uh, do something sort of nefarious. Plus, would you like
1: a save and subscribe
0: uh, membership? For no, I was just 19, thinking, like, like with the ownership masks? of of Ring, for example, you nice. could tie, you could double check: is that someone's phone? Are they really there?
1: Dun, but dun, see, dun, then, then then there would have to be a provision in there that says none of our pro companies could use that data whatsoever.
0: Okay. Well, I don't think we're going to solve this here. I think these are good points. I think we should be having this discussion. I do encourage people to think about the limits of the data and how that can happen and argue for that. But let's continue on. And let's talk about something secretly so powerful, but something mainstream users never think about. And that is... APIs, da, 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 da. So we're talking about APIs today because Apple announced that it would buy Dark Sky, which is a fantastic weather app.
1: Hyperlocal weather. I love it.
0: I love it, too. And I have an Android phone. And in the not-too-distant future, I will no longer have access to Dark Sky because Apple is shutting down the Android app and the API. So API stands for Application Programming Interface and Basically, it's how all of these web services and apps and services and whatever talk to one another. And they're super important for the Internet of Things because the Internet of Things is basically cobbling together a whole bunch of services and serving them on different devices. So in this case, Apple is going to cancel. Is that the word I want to use? Shut down. (laughs) Shut down its API. Sunset. Sunset. It's Dark Sky API in 2021. End this of the is, year, yes. End of the year in 2021. And this is disappointing because people have built services for other devices that are based on dark sky. Kevin, you use it.
1: I love APIs. I mean, I'm doing my comp sci programming stuff and I use APIs all the time. And, and without them, I wouldn't be able to do really much of anything except recreate the wheel every time, you know, and that's the whole point of an API is there's no need for you to create your own weather service if, say, a company like Dark Sky exposes its data to a programmer, an app, a, a service, a product via its API. So the Dark Sky in this ex- in this case would have written what I would call programming hooks, basically with a single line of code. I can say, Add "Dark Sky, give me the weather in Seattle right now," and just with that one line of code, as long as I'm conforming to the API documentation. Dark Sky will return that data, exactly what I want. And then I can use it in my app or with my service. So yeah, the problem now is that so many third-party apps, especially on the Android side, have decided, well, Dark Sky is the best weather data in like in real time. And it's down to like the to my individual house. So I'm going to build a an app for it or maybe a service for it. They're not going to be able to do that anymore. They're going to have to find a different data source and use a different API. So At least I will say this, I'm I'm not thrilled that Apple's shutting down the Android app on July 1 of this year. However, I am thrilled that they at least gave developers more than a year, year and a half to actually retool their apps and services.
0: And here's where things get interesting. So APIs are kind of like the back-end business of IoT. And what I've seen in the past is there are companies that have shut down their APIs because people have found them so valuable that they're like, oh, we should totally charge for this. Twitter is an example of that. There are companies that start out offering access to their APIs to build an ecosystem. And then afterwards, they will start charging for it or pulling it in, which puts a bind on people who have used it. They've got to suddenly make a new decision. But you also get cases where like with Sonos, for example, when they were like, oh, we're going to have to shut this whole old OS and all this old hardware down. We're not going to keep updating it because with APIs, as they change, you have to update your devices and your code on the back end for those devices to make sure things keep working. So for Sonos, if Spotify changes their API, Sonos has to have developers on hand who fix the API or adjust it so it still works on your system.
1: Another example that people can relate to, but probably don't understand that it's heavily related to APIs is the works with Nest program. Oh, yeah. When Google shut that down, all the code calls to all the Nest products, basically, they they kept working. That's how Google allowed people to say, okay, your current devices are still supported, but we're winding things down. Now they're going to have new APIs. And I don't think they have those yet, or they've given to a select few. That's what's happening. They're changing the way... You make commands and calls and get state of Nest devices. It's it's a coding change. It's not just a business change. I mean, I think people looked at it and said that's just Google being Google. They're just trying to be difficult. No, they're they're retooling their API and then have different parameters. Maybe costs. I don't know. I I've signed up for some APIs that are free, and every once in a while I look one and like, okay, sure, we have an API. It's ten thousand dollars for access. I'm like, what?
0: That actually happens a lot in the healthcare space. A lot of the electronic medical record companies, they charge for access to their API as a way to like, and that's actually, it's very difficult for startups, for example, to try to tie into their device to your electronic medical record because they can't afford to pay for that API integration. Exactly. So this is like this whole secret area of, it's not really the internet, it's, I mean... (laughs) Every web service and device that runs on those web service, this is what's happening on the back end. And we don't talk about it very much, but there's lots of things that need to, t- like, if you're going to offer an API, you really should start thinking about the business you want to build around it at the beginning. For a long time, it's been kind of haphazard or they're like eh we'll open it up we'll get a bunch of people who like it and use it and then we'll sh- we'll start charging which is a terrible way to do business or maybe it's a great way to do business and it's just mm, not customer friendly
1: I'd rather see people who have access to old APIs be grandfathered into new API programs personally Oh there you go but 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 if you're a big user of Dark Sky for example and so many are as I was noted it kind of reduces the potential profit they could get by selling the API to new device makers and app makers. So I sort of get why they wouldn't want to do it as well.
0: Yeah. And as Apple has done, if you're going to shut down your API, you should make it very public and give people a long time. All right. That is a lot about APIs. I know not everybody is like, woo, I love these, but they are super important. I I do love these. I do love them too. All right. Let's talk about Microsoft because they today have said, they've launched a bunch of new services. They've launched Azure Edge Zones, they are bringing this into private previews, which means it's not GA yet, but you can test it out. It may not be as fully supported. So what they're doing here is offering, and this is all designed for 5G telco services. This is part of a bigger movement that I like to think of when carriers meet the cloud. So what you have is the telco operators in the world, they've got the 5G networks, they've got, you know, well, they've got lots of networks. And they really are trying to be more like the cloud providers in lots of ways being more flexible, et cetera. But they're also the network is being tied in connectivity is tied so closely with things like data streaming and running a a platform that they have to tie in very closely with the giant cloud providers like Microsoft Azure or Amazon AWS. So Amazon did something called Wavelength and that is tying their cloud to telco carriers clouds. And now Microsoft is doing that with Azure Edge Zones. And the way to think about this, I actually was on a call this week with Nokia about they've got a new they call it the AVA 5G Cognitive Operations Platform. And really all this is, is an automated and using machine learning to detect problems with 5G networks before they impact the user. And this is super important because right now we're moving with 5G from machines talking to people, so people noticing mistakes in their calls or their internet access, to machines doing this. And machines... They think and notice things much faster than we do, especially when we're talking about like devices on a factory floor. So that is why we're seeing the cloud and the carriers come so much closer together, because we can't afford to have people in the middle because we take too long.
1: (laughs) Well, there's also the fact that if you don't have compute or services at the edge, literally connected to the, the cell towers, you end up with, you know, hopping through the internet, hop, 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 to get to the compute. And then the responses come back, hop, 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 hop. But this does is it's like a one hop stop, if that makes sense. It's
0: a one hop stop. Yes. It's all heavily integrated and converged.
1: Right. And it really comes into play with real time compute in a sense, because what Microsoft is saying, we're going to offer sub 10 millisecond latency to applications from devices with with our edge zones here on Azure. And they say typical use cases, gaming, game streaming, okay, that's fine. Media streaming, fine. Connected automobiles, you can't wait 10 hops and 500 milliseconds when you need 10 to for your car to break in case of an accident. Telemedicine, mixed reality, um, real-time analytics. So that's what it is.
0: And I think the money here is going to be in truly machines. So even gaming, I'm like, I I love all my gamers, but The type of latency we're talking about is not something that we notice for the most part, unless we're really special. This is for machines. And this is the idea, the the classic example I give is if a factory has some sort of like crazy machine of death, like they need to shut that down right away. (laughs) You can't wait for that to explode or to cut off someone's arm or whatever might happen in a factory situation, you need to do it right away. Bob lost his arm. I guess we didn't pay our internet bill. Exactly. Too bad we didn't have an Azure edge zone. Okay, (laughs) let's move from losing arms. (laughs) Terrible. to how tech companies can help us right now during the pandemic, and this is mostly social media companies, but Kevin, you feel pretty strongly about this, how they should be helping us, I guess, be better people? Yeah, I mean, again,
1: Not to beat a dead horse here, but you know, we were woefully unprepared for this pandemic. And while there have been some very positive tools being used to help people get the messaging to stay at home and uh, keep six feet away, do your social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. We're really not taking full advantage of the tech that's available. According to an article I read on Medium from Tristan Harris, who's the co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology. He's also an ex-Google design. Ethicist and the CEO of Aperture, which was acquired by Google. I think he's right after reading his article, which I highly recommend people do read. And when I say we're not using technology, it's not the sensors and so much. I mean, we can't, we don't have sensors that can detect, you know, these kind of viruses. But even the social media platforms have been very vague in their messaging. And he suggests, you know, why not have Um, use the algorithms and AI and have have those trained by actual, you know, medical people to be more specific. Instead of saying, for example, getting social messages out there that say, practice social distancing, it would be more clear to have a message that goes out as stay at home, get groceries once per week. You have more actionable, specific information for, to tackle what we're dealing with. So again, yes, it's, the article is mostly around social media messaging. But it's so viral, so powerful, no pun intended on that, that I agree with him. If we're going to use technology and AI and algorithms to give us junky news that we don't want to see and ads we don't want to see, let's use that technology to show what we do want people to see in a time like this.
0: And we used to actually, so the FCC used to actually, with broadcast TV, because that was a a federally Mm. controlled medium you know, the the free public airwaves that they were all transmitting over, they actually had to do PSAs, the public service announcements. Those were not just fun, cheesy, meme-worthy, the more you know, kind of things. They were mandated. And so (laughs) (laughs) here we don't, they're not using any public, I mean, the internet is private, the platforms are private, but the concept may in a pandemic be the same, which is, hey, step up, do some PSAs. All right, let's talk about Wi-Fi, because CNET actually did a review of the best Wi-Fi routers, and I don't actually have a problem with them. The best Wi-Fi router Kevin was so excited about, it was Google's Wi-Fi, or the Nest Wi-Fi.
1: Yeah, not necessarily excited. I I was actually a little surprised, and this is from Rye Christ. we um, we both know Rye, he's fantastic. The best overall mesh Wi-Fi system. I was surprised to see him list Nest Wi-Fi because a couple reasons. One, I hear a lot of great things from people who switched from the old Google Wi-Fi to something like an Eero or an Orbi or, or, you know, whatever it might be, Um, even going hog wild with Ubiquiti. I'm just surprised that he has Nest Wi-Fi on here. And he does mention, you know, it doesn't have Wi-Fi 6. And there are some uh, devices out there that, you know, routers that do have Wi-Fi 6. But, you know, most other devices don't yet. So I I agree with him. That's not a huge deal. I don't think it's a big missed opportunity. But I was surprised. And I I have the old uh, uh, Google Wi Fi, and currently using the Samsung SmartThings Wi Fi. You use Eero, which he said was best for large homes.
0: Yes, one of the reasons Eero was still functional, but it's also on his list up so high because it's cheap, and or cheaper rather, and that's probably thanks to Amazon buying it. I did see the prices drop significantly. So he gave Netgear's Orbi the best performance award, but they are seven hundred dollars for two of them. Yeah, I tried the original Orbis in my house, and they were very spectacular. So, like high quality super speeds, and they're really—it seems like they're engineered. Because I do notice that my like when I move to certain areas of my house in the Euro world, I do. Like, see speed decreases with Orbi. He was saying that he didn't see, he saw like a 5% drop in quality of his bandwidth, which that's pretty impressive.
1: And he has the old Netgear Orbi, the original dual band one, as a best value because it's 129 currently over at Walmart, he says. And to be honest, I kind of think maybe that should just, well, it wouldn't be best overall, but it's. About half the price of a, of a Nest Wi-Fi system. And if it still works really well, then maybe it's...
0: But, so the Orbeez are Wi-Fi 6. And the he, new ones are. The new ones are, yes. The old ones are not. If right. you are buying a new Wi-Fi router today, I kind of think you might want Wi-Fi 6. If you can wait, I would buy a Wi-Fi 6 router next year when the prices are going to come down. So mm-hmm. if you're just stuck, though, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm doing everything at home. Everything sucks. Uh.
1: And based on that, I mean essentially I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're saying don't buy the Nest Wi Fi because it's not Wi Fi six.
0: It's not Wi Fi six. It's still it's about three hundred dollars, right? No, it's two hundred and seventy.
1: Two seventy for a two piece. It used to be three hundred for the three piece. Yeah. One is a Google Assistant speaker too though.
0: Okay. Yeah, if, that, if you if, if you matters. want that. But maybe you I'd buy the Wi 6. Maybe buy the old school Netgear Orbi's for 130 bucks for a two piece setup 200 for a three piece and then in not next year because you still won't need wi-fi six next year right right but maybe 2021 or 2022 you start you will start seeing a need for it
1: so for 130 bucks and that your orbi is a nice transitional device until you really feel you need wi-fi six
0: all right i'm glad we've worked that out Let's talk about the Fitbit Charge 4, which is now, we talked about it last week or two weeks ago, because we saw FCC filings for it, or rather, other people saw FCC filings for it. How, now that they are out, Kevin, what do you think? It has one of your favorite features.
1: It actually has a lot of decent features. This is probably the first Fitbit that had me thinking, huh, maybe I can switch away from my Apple Watch or from uh, a Garmin Forerunner uh, with music that I have. But no, I'm not going to. The The, the newer features um, it has is the GPS, the built-in GPS, not the carry your phone with you for GPS. That's important to me when I go run to track everything and not have a phone with me. So that's awesome. You still get your 24-7 heart rate tracking. That's awesome. You get your sleep tracking. That's awesome. One of the downsides for me is both of my current wearables, I have local music storage. So again, don't need a phone if I want to go run with wireless headphones you have spotify control on this not spotify offline which i have on both of my other devices
0: okay i'll tell you with the pandemic fitbit made their fitbit premium free for a couple months and i got it cuz i was like yeah let's let's mess with that again oh my gosh i actually i'm not paying for it and i want it gone i don't like it <laughs>
1: <laughs> you should pay me for keeping it
0: <laughs> so i'm i'm i canceled my subscription after this before, I think it's monthly, I canceled the non-subscription that I'm paying for (laughs) because the workouts aren't great. You have to go to another app, the Fitbit Coach app for it. They're not any better than what I can get on Nike, whatever, training club. And the only thing Fitbit's giving me is stupid advice, like, congratulations, you met your sleep goal for three nights this week. I'm like, yeah, Fitbit, I get it. Thanks. Or things like, on Tuesdays, you don't exercise as much as you do every other day of the week. Maybe you should get at it. And I'm like, this is not actionable intelligence. It's just actions. There's no intelligence mm. there.
1: But they do have some intelligence in here because they do have automatic exercise recognition, which is nice.
0: I have that uh, on my Fitbit without premium.
1: Yeah. No, I hear you. I'm not saying, I'm not, believe me, I'm not trying to justify the premium. Okay. I was like,
0: uh, no, Kevin, it's not great. Yeah. But you know what is great? What's that? Wise. My wise cam can now be a webcam if i have an sd card and i load i change its firmware. This is a little bonus thing that wise has done i guess because a lot of people are finding quality webcams well, they're are streaming.
1: they're they're streaming from home and maybe they have old machines or they want to have desktops,
0: yeah. Yeah, so so now you can do this and it's it's no facebook portal that'll follow you everywhere or my google device. Don't get me started. Yeah, don't, don't, don't started. go don't go there. But yeah, so I thought this was nice. So if you have a Wyze and an SD card sitting around somewhere and you need a webcam, you can do that. They're also in the Seattle area. Not that this applies to as many people, but if you send them an email and you're a business owner whose business is shut down and you need a security camera, they'll just send you one, which is kind of nice.
1: Really nice. I like that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Speaking of being really nice, let's talk about the world we want to live in post-pandemic and our little exercise in hope. And today's topic is bringing the internet and making it a true utility. And this is an idea that I have been passionate about actually since oh, I don't know, two thousand eight,
1: since the MySpace days,
0: (laughs) forever. But GeoCities, I used to be a broadband reporter at GigaOm and. As part of that, I spent years reporting on ways to make internet service in the U.S. cheaper and more ubiquitous for more people. And we really dropped the ball, I'm going to say. We had the chance to, one, have a national broadband plan. It was too much money. We said, nope, nope, we're just going to leave it exactly as it is. Have the cable providers, they're they're sort of doing stuff. And the DSL providers, DSL isn't as great as fiber to the home, but that's okay. It's It's internet service we watched as the fcc changed their definition of broadband from a whopping 56k yeah you guys 56
1: AOL. compuserve
0: all the way up to i believe their definition of broadband was like at 5 megabits per second and this was like in 2008 it was was not so we watched them you know finagle their definitions so broadband was still capable under like dsl We watched them mess up their broadband maps. They basically, instead of showing where broadband was on the home basis, they were like, oh, let's use census tracts because this is competitive information for carriers. And we watched as net neutrality. That was just a debacle, a 10-year debacle that it happened, then it was gutted, then it happened, and then it was gutted. And yeah. So what does this mean? There are countries and even the United Nation recognizes broadband in high-quality home broadband not as something that's nice to have. It's a right. It's a human right, according to the UN. Other countries have decided it's a necessity. It's a utility. And I think right now, in the midst of this pandemic, what we're seeing is it is a necessity. It can be done. (laughs) Well, and the FCC has opened up – they've done a couple things. They've actually gotten a lot of ISPs to sign the Keep America Connected Pledge, which – expands like free access to a computer for people who are on federal assistance and cheap access to broadband for like 10 bucks a month. And in some cases it's free. They also are trying to give, one of the ideas is to give school children better access through libraries. My libraries are closed, but through the same method that we're using for delivering lunches when schools are closed to kids who Mm -hmm. need federal lunch assistance we can actually deliver hotspots to them and provide them internet access at home when they're trying to learn. And I'd also like to see the FCC deliver a real broadband map that shows where we don't have connection. They also, for rural areas, made 5.9 gigahertz spectrum available for WISPs, which are wireless ISPs, to broaden coverage and capacity for wireless networks, fixed wireless networks in rural areas where it's too expensive to lay fiber. So there's a lot that's happening here. I want to see us make it permanent. And I want to see us come out of this with a federal mandate to say broadband is not just nice. It is a necessity. Like hot water, like clean water, like electricity, we need an electrification act for broadband that comprehensively covers our country and our citizens. And that is my passionate like plea to everyone.
1: Hallelujah. I completely agree. And it's the one other aspect that I've noticed as a result of what's going on now with everybody basically working from home and they're on their video conference calls and so on. Internet usage is up. Uh, I believe I read uh, about 30% uh, in terms of the capacity. And there have been some actions taken to help mitigate too much traffic. I know that um, some of the streaming services have reduced, especially in Europe, Netflix and YouTube, maybe. i dropped down to SD, standard definition video, for example, so less data is flowing through the pipes so that everybody has access to do what they need to do. But what's interesting is that the companies here in the US that have data caps, the broadband companies, have temporarily lifted those caps so that way you don't have to worry about it. I don't have a cap on my Fios, but I know Comcast people do, and I suspect others do as well. The speeds aren't really slowing down. The capacity is there. The infrastructure is there. So now everybody's saying, well, maybe you shouldn't have these caps. You can certainly handle everything. And
0: Yeah, those caps were always intended to maintain price parity with cable service plus broadband. So cable companies and... ISPs who also owned, you know, cable, they wanted to basically charge you $150 a month. And if you went over the top for streaming, and only bought a $50 broadband package, that would be a problem for them. So what's happened is they added these caps to charge you extra, and then they've also been ramping up the bills. Okay, that's it. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Soapbox over. I know you guys, I'm sorry. I yeah, that's a soapbox moment. I'm sorry.
1: Well, you you cover policy again since 2007 or so. I am
0: old and embittered, y'all. So old and embittered, and I mean, broadband is literally how we do this show. I've been a remote worker since 2005. I, my job is broadband. It's pretty much as
1: essential to me as my electricity is, as my HVAC system is, as whatever, as my cell phone service. I mean, it's pretty essential.
0: Yeah. All right. So mm-hmm. let's, let's recognize it and make it so. Okay. Make it so. Let's talk about Home Assistant. Home Assistant, Kevin. Home Assistant. Yes, yes, yes.
1: So I have talked once or twice about this now, It's kind of like an ongoing series of getting away from the store-bought smart home systems and using a Raspberry Pi and open source software called Home Assistant. So this week, I started doing more with the integrations that are there, basically connecting my devices, seeing what devices can be connected to it and which ones can't or what pitfalls I've seen, as well as remote access, which is pretty important. And so if you have a a hub today from SmartThings or Wink or something like that, you have remote access through the app. Here with Home Assistant, You kind of have to do it yourself. They give you a solution, which I'll talk about in a minute. And that solution also includes having access to your digital voice assistants, Madam A and Google. So I thought that was kind of interesting that the two are tied together. And unfortunately, it's for a fee. It's 30 day free trial, which I'm on right now, but $5 a month gets you remote access to your smart home as well as the voice assistant integrations. So I wasn't keen on that, but okay. I mean, you're not paying for for the hub itself other than the Raspberry Pi or whatever hardware you're using. So I guess I can live with that. Turning that on was very easy. And, And I've tested it, although I haven't gone far from my house. I've used it over LTE and it works fine. But the integrations are interesting. On the pro side, there are probably more integrations than you could imagine, that are available. Like There are companies I've never heard of that you can integrate your home assistant smart home with. So, that's that's great. But some need a little work. And a perfect example, we talked about the uh, Nest earlier in the show. So, video doorbells, you only have a choice right now of four, and that's Ring, August, DoorBird, and SkyBell. No Nest. And part of that is because of the works with Nest, I, I presume, that that program may shut down. And in fact, that program has impacted the other Nest integrations because you can integrate Nest for cameras, sensors, and thermostats, but for the cameras, it's only a video stream, not live. So that's a potential pitfall there. And again, with the program changing, you actually need a developer account to use the Nest integration. And you can't even get that right now because of the works with Nest program being Sunset. So that's kind of yucky for me right now. But at least the the documentation was very clear. I give them that because then I tried to add Spotify, which is typically pretty easy to do. And it said, oh, you have to configure it by following instructions. Well, that's kind of what the Nest thing did. And it gave me a link to the instructions. There was no link to these. So I don't even know where to go look now. So I have to go look for that. Another perfect example. And I know you're going to cringe when you hear this, Stacey. Lutron. Not that I have any Lutron Casita devices. No! mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So they are there. But you first have to log into your Lutron account and generate a certificate so that Home Assistant can connect to your Lutron bridge. You do that.
0: Yay, security.
1: You download a Python script from GitHub, and that generates three files. You then use the instructions at the top of the script to fill in your personal information. And then once you have everything filled in, and you've got that certificate put on your Raspberry Pi or wherever you're running Home Assistant, then you can integrate. Would you do that? No, no, I would not. And that's what I keep coming back to. So far, Home Assistant works really well for what I've used it for. It has so many integrations and so much control. I mean, the the automations and scenes, it's like what you've seen before, but on steroids, it's fantastic. Even geolocation, you can use it in a hidden mode so that it's not used for device tracking, but it is used for automations. I mean, so it's very privacy-centric, but there's often some... Technical know-how needed. And again, I give them credit in most cases. The documentation is very clear. But then again, I know how to use a Python script. I know how to pull something down from GitHub. Most people, I don't think they do or want to learn to do it.
0: All right.
1: Okay. But I don't want to shy people away from it because you can learn a lot here. You really can if you don't mind. And I know on our voice, we're going to talk about security. And that's where I think this is a huge, huge benefit to having. Home Assistant, because your data is your data.
0: Okay, so let's move to that. It's time for the Internet of Things podcast hotline, which is where we answer your questions about the smart home, devices, or whatever else you would like to talk about. I have been baking bread, so if you want questions answered about sourdough starters, give us a call at 512-623-7424, and you will be entered to win a prize. This month's prize is going to be a Schlage lock. They are back soon. They will be a sponsor again. So we're just going to throw out the Schlage lock as this month's prize. No, we're throwing it in, not throwing it out. Okay, you're right. We're throwing it in, into the ring. <laughs> so give us a call during the month of April and you will be entered to win. So call 512 623 74 And we have a winner for the month of March. The winner is Tim. Tim wins an Aware Glow C, a really exciting, fun... I think it's really exciting and fun. It's an air quality monitor sensor that you plug in. It also, the plug, you can plug in various devices that can react to the quality of your air, or you can just plug in a light and schedule it on a timer. It's a multifunctional device. I have one, and I actually really enjoy it. So, that is what Tim is going to win. Yay, Tim. All right, let's go to the question, which as Kevin foreshadowed is indeed about home assistant and security. This week's question is also from Kevin. Let's hear it.
2: Hi, Stacey and Kevin. A question that might be a little more long term uh, coming to. I'm Kevin from Raleigh, North Carolina. The question is what Kevin thinks about home assistant and security. I've Worked with it a bit, had it set up in multiple different ways, never on a Pi, but Docker containers, locally installed, etc. And security is the single biggest thing holding me back, aside from the time spent on fiddling, but that's kind of the fun part. Anyways, I'll hear from you soon, I hope. Thanks. Bye.
0: Okay, Kevin. Let's answer Kevin's question. I'm going to let you do it (laughs) since you are the Home Assistant guru.
2: Well,
1: I'm still learning, but, and I'm glad that Kevin asked this question because I hadn't thought about it so much. I figured, well, I'm just using a Raspberry Pi on my local home network and the remote access I'm doing through the paid service. I'm sure it's secure. By the way, Kevin, you can use that remote access through the official Home Assistant app uh, for iOS or Android, which is what I'm using right now. There are other clients, but you can, it looks just like your Home Assistant dashboard, which is nice. I didn't even look into the security until Kevin asked this question. So it turns out that secure remote access, Home Assistant has a document saying, here's the how to secure your system. And the easiest option is to use the Home Assistant cloud, which is uh, that paid service. You can use TLS or SSL to expose your Home Assistant instance to the internet, use a VPN, Tor, or an SSH tunnel if you really want to go hog wild in a terminal or some other client So it seems like from an access remote access standpoint they are pretty well covered there. Additionally, you don't have to do what I used to do 10 years ago and poke a hole in your home firewall on your router, you set up NAT or anything like that. This is all automatic, which is awesome. As far as the port that's used, Home Assistant uses 8123, so it's not a very common port, although yes, People do scan for open ports and such. So, but still just using some non standard port such as 445 or 8080 or 80 is typically used for internet traffic. That's a bonus in my book. Also for SSH connection, secure shell access, you use that really for debugging. You probably could control your system with it, but it's disabled by default and can only be used with keys. Um, that's on port 22 222 two, if you're interested. But again, I think the home assistant folks have really taken all the security into consideration here and done just about everything they can to make it secure, but yet easily usable. If you want to just use their client, or if you're more technically adept, play around with your with your router. Either way, however you do it, I feel comfortable. Do you? I don't know, but hopefully this information gives you uh, more data to make that choice.
0: Yay! Thank you, Kevin, and thank you, Kevin, for calling us at 512-623-7424 and asking us your question. Please, if you have a question for the month of April, give us a call. It is actually my birthday month. You could probably even just call and wish me happy birthday. So let's see what happens. All right. Now it is time for our guest. This week's guest is Steve Steinhubel, who is going to talk to us about the DETECT program, which is A program that any of us who have a Fitbit, an Apple Watch, whatever, we can join it and help try to use our data to figure out how fast COVID-19 is spreading. So learn more about that program, about how to use wearables in large-scale medical research projects, and find out how they're using the data and protecting it. All this and more after a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Calyx. Hey everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Calyx. And today I have Michael Vaining from Calyx here to talk with us about how Calyx helps ISPs better serve their customers. Well, let's just get started with you telling us a little bit about Calyx.
2: Thank you for the opportunity, Stacey. Calix is a provider of cloud, software, system, and services on a mission to assist service providers of all sizes, from your local small-town broadband provider to companies as large as Verizon, to deliver amazing Wi-Fi and broadband experiences to their subscribers on future-proof fiber networks.
0: All right, Michael. And how is Calix helping service providers?
2: That is a great question, Stacy. At Calix, we believe that the company with the best data wins. So we start by arming service providers with great insights into what their subscribers need. We do that with Calix Marketing Cloud, a real-time behavioral analytics engine that helps a service provider segment their customers. We identify segments such as streamers and gamers and work-from-home users so they can market the right service to the right household. Once they understand their subscribers' needs, we arm the service provider with our cool Wi-Fi systems, the Gigaspire Blast, the Blast was the first carrier class Wi-Fi 6 system in the marketplace. Every Blast is fully managed with Calix Support Cloud so that if the subscriber does have an issue such as Wi-Fi coverage or speed, it can be easily handled remotely without a service call, which is even more important in today's current environment. That Blast system also acts as a storefront in the home for the service provider. They are now able to easily offer new branded services such as Protect IQ, our virus malware and intrusion prevention system, or Experience IQ, our parental control system. Each of these new services is fully managed by our world-class mobile app, Command IQ, that they customize with their brand. Last, we partner with the service provider at every step to help them successfully market their new solutions. We help them build great marketing campaigns and an awesome website with our service provider activation program and customer success teams.
0: All right, then. With everything going on in the world right now, can you give me some examples of how Calyx helps its customers?
2: As you know, Stacy. This is a tough time, but it's also a great opportunity for companies who focus on the success of their community to step up and really make a difference. A great example is WCTEL. They used Calix Marketing Cloud to understand who had made the transition to work from home and proactively reached out to each of those homes to offer a free 60-day jump in broadband to meet their new needs. At this critical time, companies like Allo, GBTC, and Paul Bunyan are demonstrating what it means to support their community. They're offering world-class Wi-Fi 6 with the Calix Blast on a fast fiber network run on Calix AXOS and are expanding their service daily.
0: So where can our listeners go to find out more about Calix and its Revenue Edge service?
2: Stacy, they can go to calix.com to learn how the Revenue Edge is helping service providers of all sizes serve their communities through the power of data and world-class experiences.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host Stacey Higginbotham and today's guest is Steve Steinhubel, who is the Director of Digital Medicine at the Scripps Translational Institute. Hello, Steve. How are you today?
3: Hi, Stacey. I'm great. Thank you for talking to me.
0: Oh, I am super excited. So, this all sounds very important what you do. So, could you tell us a little bit about scripts and the Translational Institute?
3: Absolutely. So, we believe it's important and makes it fun to wake up every day. But in reality, what we're focused on is trying to improve healthcare, to translate basic science ideas into clinical practice and really change the way we care for people and keep them healthy. Our focus is primarily on genomics and digital technology. And then under the umbrella of digital technology, there's three main buckets. One is the sensors that we think about and the wearable sensors that give us new and very novel information about our health. Another large part of it is artificial intelligence and machine learning. So really taking advantage of these large new data sets and and making sense out of them. And then finally, and probably the least appreciated is the communication aspect of digital medicine technology. And that's the fact that you can remain connected 24-7. Your healthcare is not just these isolated incidents of care every several months or every several years when you see a doctor, but rather kind of an ongoing relationship.
0: Wow, there is a lot to unpack there. And today we're going to focus on using wearables to predict illness and to understand what makes for a, a good clinical study using wearables. But I always love to ask doctors where they think the world of healthcare will end up.
3: I think one of the challenges that healthcare providers have today when they envision where this is going is they envision it in our current systems of care. And our current systems of care are completely built around what we've been doing for centuries, really, of the patient comes and sees us when they're sick. And so really, although we call it healthcare, the majority of what we do is sickness care. And we've got centuries of experience of doing that. And what the digital technology allows us to do, which we've never been able to do before, is actually create new systems of care. And I think that that's a really important distinction is what really kind of stresses out um, healthcare providers, healthcare systems, is they looking at how can digital technology fit into what we currently do. And I think that that's too difficult to envision or it's not going to really move the needle at all. It's not going to improve our care. What we have to instead is look at it and say, how do we create new systems of care that take advantage of these digital technologies that can help keep our patients healthier, safer, and and just more active in a higher quality of life? Best vision that, or example I think I have for what could be the future of healthcare is looking at what Amazon Cares is is rolling out for their employees, where it's, it's really completely different. Where it's if you want to text a doctor, if you want to have a virtual visit with a doctor, it's all up to you. Your medications are sent right to your home and in their pill pack set up, but it's really, they've designed healthcare starting with what the patient needs as opposed to what healthcare systems are designed around is really how do we take most advantage of the doctor, how do we bring the patient to the doctor, and and so it's more about me than it often is about the patient. So I think that that's telling not only what Amazon does, or the, but just the fact that Amazon had to do it. The fact that, that it was an, a large employer is, is the one who's innovating in healthcare and Walmart's doing it and CVS Health is doing it and, and several others are doing it. It's not you know the large healthcare systems that are, are changing healthcare. It's, it's the people who um, have a vested interest in keeping people healthy.
0: True. Let's talk about this idea because before we can have high quality wellness care, uh, digital medicine, we really need to have high quality remote sensors. So having the ability to trust the devices that doctors are trying to use to measure how someone's doing at home. You guys have started working on this, let's see, a while back. So you had a study back in 2016 through 2020 that had 200,000 Fitbit users and you were tracking for influenza-like illnesses. Can you tell us a little bit about that study and what it takes to find a consumer wearable that is appropriate for medical trials?
3: Yeah, so it's a great question and, and, and a challenging uh, because there is this, gray zone between what is a commercial consumer device and what is a medical device. And even with the FDA, they've, they've had some changing views on it, but looking at what the data tell us one in five uh, Americans will have a smartwatch or an activity tracker and use it regularly, and and that measures our heart rate. And it's been validated in uh, multiple different studies that, it, especially at rest, maybe less so when we're active, But at rest, almost all of those wearables give us a a very good indication of our heart rate. So I'm a cardiologist Ever, ever since I've been a doctor and every doctor, when somebody comes into the doctor's office, we measure their pulse and it will record their pulse and it might be 60, it may be 72, it might be 90. And we, as the healthcare providers, rarely pay attention to it unless it's really abnormal. So what we're doing in our mind is saying, okay, the, you're within the population normal of a resting heart rate, and so that's okay, so I'm not going to worry about it. But now we have these technologies that give us a accurate consistent heart rate from day to day to day and what we found in that research looking at the Fitbit data is that there's wide variability between individuals in their resting heart rate. We looked at about right around 100,000 individuals, what their daily resting heart rate was over a two-year period. For that average, so over two years, some people's resting heart rate average was in the upper 40s. Other people's, it was in the upper 90s. But what was fascinating is how consistent it was for each individual over time, that it it really tended to not vary by more than three beats per minute. What this suggested to us is that an individual change in resting heart rate on a day-to-day basis is a unique vital sign for that individual and a, a potential measure of what their health is. So that when they're healthy, their resting um, heart rate stays nice and, and normal. But if there's some insult to the system, an infection, you know, anything else, a GI bleed, a heart failure exacerbation, an asthma exacerbation, that their resting heart rate is going to change. And, and that was the hypothesis. And Dr. Jennifer Radin from our group is who looked at that in a population-based standpoint. So with the Fitbit data we worked with, it was all retrospective data, it was all de-identified, Um, And so all we were able to do is to look at individuals who lived in certain areas, looking for a population change in individual resting heart rates, and then comparing that with our gold standard influenza-like illness data, which comes from the CDC. And what Dr. Radin found is this very strong correlation of changes in resting heart rate. She also looked at sleep. We didn't have activity data, so just sleep and resting heart rate. Um, changes and the relationship with influenza-like illnesses identified by the CDC.
0: From there, it meant that if your resting heart rate went up, you were likely fighting the flu.
3: That's what we think. And this and importantly, that was a retrospective study and it was a population-based study. In the other study where we looked at the Fitbit data and we just looked at changes in resting heart rate, What we found is interestingly that over a two-year period, people on average might have three episodes where their resting heart rate increases for two to three days, more than one standard deviation above what their normal resting heart rate is. Now, we don't know what happened during these episodes, but we think those may potentially be related to like a viral illness or some other physiologic stress on the system.
0: Got it. All right. So this this makes me feel all sweet and purposeful wearing my Fitbit around, and and now I'm like staring at my heart rate data, and I'm like, okay, what does this mean? But how do you design a study? I mean, it's one thing for me to be like, oh, well, clearly I'm fighting an illness. My heart rate is up by plus or minus three beats. But for something to actually matter in the medical world, it has to be validated, I'm sure there are clinical standards you want to tell me about. So, how do you design a study to measure something like a consumer wearable which is obviously not a controlled environment?
3: Yeah. So, it's a great question and and there's a lot of kind of layers to that. So, a starting point to think about it for the audience is about every week there are close to 60,000 peer-reviewed research studies published in the healthcare alone literature. What digital technology allows, too, is complete changing of the way we do research trials, where we can do them much more pragmatically, where we can include people who don't happen to live next to an academic medical center, that we can reach out to people wherever they live, could be miles away. So that's just as kind of a starting point. But to be able to show that a digital vital sign, such as change in resting heart rate, should change the way we take care of patients and improve the way we take care of patients. There are several ways to do that. You can do that in a very controlled environment. And before the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Radin had been talking to the Army and and BARDA and other funding agencies are doing controlled studies in, let's say, a group of army recruits where it's, it's common where a viral infection can get spread from one to the other just by the close living conditions early. And being able to identify that early and then being able to, once somebody gets sick, to be able to test them very aggressively, do a flu test or other test if it's another virus. And so that would be one way in a a somewhat of controlled environment that in that situation, whether it be Army recruits and stuff, you could implement those findings right away. Um, In the trial that we're doing that we and, and was motivated by our what we saw as a huge unmet need by the COVID pandemic is a much more wide scale ability to recognize individuals when they weren't feeling well and potentially had a viral illness from both a personal standpoint and a broad epidemiological standpoint.
0: This sounds a little bit like your DETECT project. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: The overarching goal of the DETECT study program is to determine if data from a wearable device can identify the onset of a viral illness earlier than is routinely detected, and that by doing so in a large population spread out across the nation and eventually across the world, can we also provide epidemiologic data that can help from a public health standpoint to track and contain a viral illness. And so to do that, we designed a trial that was uh, had a very broad outreach that we wanna enroll um, hundreds of thousands and, and ideally millions of people who routinely use activity trackers or smartwatches and asking them to share their data. And then the only other thing we really are asking our participants to do is to tell us when they feel ill when they have what the symptoms of what might be they they are concerned about might be a viral infection. Then uh, one of the other wonderful things about digital technology is it keeps getting better and changing. So we envision in the future we'll collect ECG data. At some point in the future we'll be able to collect continuous blood pressure data, potentially stress data measured in, in several different ways. So the goal will be essentially to look at participants who do have a viral infection and the ideal group of that will be the ones who go on to be tested and we'll ask people that too and we'll ask people if they're willing to link their electronic health records so we could have very objective evidence of what testing was done and what the result was. And then we hope if we have a large enough group of individuals, what we'll do is compare people who did have a clear viral illness and that may be coronavirus, it could be influenza, it could be a a GI virus, and look at their changes in heart rate leading up to when they were diagnosed and be able to see if was there a noticeable change in heart rate, and then how soon did that start before they started really having symptoms and were officially diagnosed.
0: All right, so let's talk about this. It looks like as a Fitbit user, all I need to do is go on to Android Play or Apple's App Store, and download an app to to make this work. So you're trying to get as many people as possible. Bu- yeah, hundreds
3: of thousands of people. The study's called the Detect study. The app itself is called My Data Helps. That was developed by a, a great collaborator, friends of ours at Care Evolution, that designed that to really enable fast research and safe and private data sharing, secure data sharing, of individuals and it's so you'll download this my data helps app and then you can select the tech study to be the study you'd like to participate in. We we try to have a very transparent and clear this is what we're asking you to do, this is what we're going to do for you, and and then the consent form. And once you consent, we'll ask you to to link your wearable data that could be directly with the Fitbit or any device that connects through Apple Health Kit or the Google Fit apps. Uh, we'll collect that too.
0: Got it. So let's talk about some of the security and privacy things because this is, I worry about my heart rate data and what it might tell people. Let's, let's talk about security first. Do you guys encrypt the data coming and going and? So we
3: feel like any successful digital research program has to have trust with the participants and security and privacy is our, our highest priority. So the data is encrypted. It's de-identified. There's no clearly identifiable characteristics. Although what is identifiable can is a changing kind of definition. So there have been some several recent publications in the lay press about tracking smartphone location data. And location, we think, will be helpful in the future. We have that turned off right now. And we want to make sure that when we do ask people if they're willing to share location data, that we can do that in, a, let's say, in a vague way where it isn't exactly where your specific location is, but maybe um, in a zip code or a several block area. We want to make sure we do it right and only in people who are willing to, to share that. We've had, when we worked with Fitbit, they were appropriately concerned about activity data, so step counts as being identifiable, because some people will blog, tweet, or put on social media how many steps they had that day, and so we felt like it may be possible to re-identify people based on that information. So rounding different numbers in a way that they're not identifiable is part of our DNA and how um, my data helps this design and how we will be looking at this data. Because from a scientific standpoint, we're very big believers in open science and sharing data. We don't think just because the trial was our idea and we put it together that some, for some reason that means all the data belongs to us. Or a lot of really smart people who can have some very clever ideas out there. And so we want to make sure that the data is available to others, but in a, in a way that is 100 percent secure and private for the participants in, in the program.
0: Got it. That is that is important. And what about working with companies? So it sounds like you're linking. Fitbit data. So Fitbit, do they have a role to play in this?
3: Well, they've been a great partner in helping support our preliminary research going into this. They've helped get the word out. But right now, all of the what we're asking any uh, wearable developer provider such as Fitbit is just to help us get the word out to their users. From an altruistic standpoint, we, we want people to be part of the study to help answer some very important questions, especially now in, in the era of COVID-19, but also we want to design the, the tech study to be that benefit to the individual. So what we can call conditional altruism, where individuals can share and, and make the world a better place by being part of this, but at the same time, get useful, unique information for themselves. So all of the device manufacturers were enthusiastically reaching out to them for their help and just getting the word out right now.
0: All right, and then this data does is it only for this study? does it get saved and could be used for another study later on down the road? What happens to it?
3: So the way I look at it is, you know, the data we're collecting today will be different than the data we collect a year from now. And I said by one of the benefits of having open science means that, the research questions we ask isn't dependent on just my imagination or Dr. Radin's imagination or Dr. Kier, who are the two who did the other Fitbit work, but rather, you know, every scientist, whether citizen scientist or academic professor, scientist in the world who, who says, I have this really important question that I think this data can answer. And 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 so there are a lot of uh, things that are unknown. You had mentioned heart rate variability. It, it's something that That the devices measure, but we're not sure what to do with yet. And we're not specifically planning on looking at that right now, but eventually we would like to. And maybe somebody else who's also looked at heart rate variability might really want to look at that in relationship to sleep or to anything else they think of. So yes, there'll be many, we hope, thousands of different research questions can be answered with the data we collect over time.
0: Got it. All right. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. I feel both smarter and now I'm ready to sign up for the study.
3: we really appreciate your willingness to talk to us and talk about the tech study. We always tend to be a little bit biased and fall in love with our own research ideas, but we're very enthusiastic about the tech, and we hope that your listeners will be equally enthusiastic and will go to their app store or the Android store and sign up for it.
0: That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at StacyonioT.com. We'll see you next week.